0: hermann von helmholtz an autobiographical sketch an address delivered on the occasion of his jubilee 1891 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org in the course of the past year and most recently on the occasion of the celebration of my seventieth birthday and the subsequent festivities i have been overloaded with honours with marks of respect and of goodwill, in a way which could never have been expected my own sovereign his majesty the german emperor has raised me to the highest rank in the civil service the kings of sweden and of italy my former sovereign the grand duke of baden and the president of the french republic have conferred grand crosses on me many academies not only of science but also of the fine arts faculties and learned societies spread over the whole world from tomsk to melbourne have sent me diplomas and richly illuminated addresses expressing in elevated language their recognition of my scientific endeavours and their thanks for those endeavours in terms which i cannot read without a feeling of shame my native town potsdam has conferred its freedom on me to all this must be added the countless individuals scientific and personal friends pupils and others personally unknown to me who have sent their congratulations in telegrams and in letters but this is not all you desire to make my name the banner as it were of a magnificent institution which founded by lovers of science of all nations is to encourage and promote scientific inquiry in all countries science and art are indeed at the present time the only remaining bond of peace between civilized nations their ever-increasing development is a common aim of all is effected by the common work of all and for the common good of all a great and a sacred work the founders even wish to devote their gift to the promotion of these branches of science which all my life i have pursued and thus bring me with my shortcomings before future generations almost as an exemplar of scientific investigation this is the proudest honour which you could confer upon me insomuch as you thereby show that i possess your unqualified favourable opinion but it would border on presumption were i to accept it without a quiet expectation on my part that the judges of future centuries will not be influenced by considerations of personal favour my personal appearance even, you have represented in marble by a master of the first rank, so that I shall appear to the present and to future generations, in a more ideal form, and another master of the etching needle has ensured that faithful portraits of me shall be distributed among my contemporaries. I cannot fail to remember that all you have done is an expression of the sincerest and warmest goodwill on your part— and that I am most deeply indebted to you for it. I must, however, be excused if the first effect of these abundant honours is rather surprising and confusing to me than intelligible. My own consciousness does not justify me in putting a measure of the value of what I have tried to do, which would leave such a balance in my favour as you have drawn. I know how simply everything I have done has been brought about, how scientific methods worked out by my predecessors have naturally led to certain results and how frequently a fortunate circumstance or a lucky accident has helped me but the chief difference is this that which i have seen slowly growing from small beginnings through months and years of toilsome and tentative work all that suddenly starts before you like pallas fully equipped from the head of jupiter a feeling of surprise has entered into your estimate but not into mine at times and perhaps even frequently my own estimate may possibly have been unduly lowered by the fatigue of the work and by vexation about all kinds of futile steps which i had taken My colleagues, as well as the public at large, estimate a scientific or artistic work according to the utility, the instruction, or the pleasure which it has afforded. An author is usually disposed to base his estimate on the labor it has cost him, and it is but seldom that both kinds of judgment agree. It can, on the other hand, be seen from incidental expressions of some of the most celebrated men, especially of artists that they lay but small weight on productions which seem to us inimitable compared with others which have been difficult and yet which appeared to readers and observers as much less successful i need only mention goethe who once stated to eicherman that he did not estimate his poetical works so highly as what he had done in the theory of colours the same may have happened to me though in a more modest degree if i may accept your assurances and those of the authors of the addresses which have reached me permit me therefore to give you a short account of the manner in which i have been led to the special direction of my work in my first seven years i was a delicate boy for long confined to my room and often even to bed But, nevertheless, I had a strong inclination towards occupation and mental activity. My parents busied themselves a good deal with me. Picture books and games, especially with wooden blocks, filled up the rest of the time. Reading came pretty early, which, of course, greatly increased the range of my occupations. But a defect of my mental organization showed itself almost as early in that I had a bad memory for disconnected things. The first indication of this I considered to be the difficulty I had in distinguishing between left and right. Afterwards, when at school I began with languages, I had greater difficulties than others in learning words, irregular grammatical forms, and peculiar terms of expression. History as then taught to us I could scarcely master. To learn prose by heart was martyrdom this defect has of course only increased and is a vexation of my mature age but when i possessed small mnemotechnical methods or merely such as are afforded by the metre and rhyme of poetry learning by heart and the retention of what i had learned went on better i easily remembered poems by great authors but by no means so easily the somewhat artificial verses of authors of the second rank I think that is probably due to the natural flow of thought in good poems, and I am inclined to think that in this connection is to be found an essential basis of aesthetic beauty. In the higher classes of the gymnasium I could repeat some books of the Odyssey, a considerable number of the Odes of Horace, and large stores of German poetry in other directions i was just in the position of our older ancestors who were not able to write and hence expressed their laws and their history in verse so as to learn them by heart that which a man does easily he usually does willingly hence i was first of all a great admirer and lover of poetry this inclination was encouraged by my father who while he had a strict sense of duty was also of an enthusiastic disposition impassioned for poetry and particularly for the classic period of german literature he taught german in the upper classes of the gymnasium and read homer with us under his guidance we did alternately themes in german prose and metrical exercises poems as we called them but even if most of us remained indifferent poets we learned better in this way than in any other i know of how to express what we had to say in the most varied manner but the most perfect mnemotechnical help is a knowledge of the laws of phenomena this i first got to know in geometry from the time of my childish playing with wooden blocks the relations of special proportions to each other were well known to me from actual perception what sort of figures were produced when bodies of regular shape were laid against each other i knew well without much consideration when i began the scientific study of geometry all the facts which i had to learn were perfectly well known and familiar to me much to the astonishment of my teachers so far as i recollect that came out incidentally in the elementary school attached to the potsdam training college which i attended up to my eighth year strict scientific methods on the contrary were new to me and with their help i saw the difficulties disappear which had hindered me in other regions one thing was wanting in geometry it dealt exclusively with abstract forms of space and i delighted in complete reality as i became bigger and stronger i went about with my father and my schoolfellows a great deal in the neighbourhood of my native town potsdam and i acquired a great love of nature this is perhaps the reason why the first fragments of physics which i learned in the gymnasium engrossed me much more closely than purely geometrical and algebraic studies here there was a copious and multifarious region with the mighty fulness of nature to be brought under the dominion of a mentally apprehended law and in fact that which first fascinated me was the intellectual mastery over nature which at first confronts us as so unfamiliar by the logical force of law but this of course soon led to the recognition that knowledge of natural processes was the magical key which places ascendancy over nature in the hands of its possessor in this order of ideas i felt myself at home i plunged then with great zeal and a pleasure into the study of all the books on physics i found in my father's library they were very old-fashioned phlogiston still held sway and galvanism had not grown beyond the volatile pile a young friend and myself tried with our small means all sorts of experiments about which we had read the action of acids on our mother's stores of linen we investigated thoroughly we had otherwise but little success most successful was perhaps the construction of optical instruments by means of spectacle glasses which were to be had in potsdam and a small botanical lens belonging to my father the limitation of our means had at that time the value that i was compelled always to vary in all possible ways my plans for experiments until I got them in a form in which I could carry them out. I must confess that many a time, when the class was reading Cicero or Virgil, both of which I found very tedious, I was calculating under the desk the path of rays in a telescope, and I discovered, even at that time, some optical theorems not ordinarily met with in textbooks, but which I afterwards found useful, in the construction of the ophthalmoscope thus it happened that i entered upon that special line of study to which i have subsequently adhered and which in the conditions i have mentioned grew into an absorbing impulse amounting even to a passion this impulse to dominate the actual world by acquiring an understanding of it or what i think is only another expression for the same thing to discover the causal connection of phenomena has guided me through my whole life and the strength of this impulse is possibly the reason why i have found no satisfaction in apparent solutions of problems so long as i felt there were still obscure points in them and now i was to go to the university physics was at that time looked upon as an art by which a living could not be made my parents were compelled to be very economical and my father explained to me that he knew of no other way of helping me to the study of physics than by taking up the study of medicine into the bargain i was by no means averse from the study of living nature and assented to this without much difficulty moreover the only influential person in our family had been a medical man the late surgeon-general and this relationship was a recommendation in my favor among other applicants for admission to our army medical school the Friedrich wilhelms institute which very materially helped the poorer students in passing through their medical course in this study i came at once under the influence of a profound teacher johannes muller he who at the same time introduced e dubois raymond e brooke c ludwig and virchow to the study of anatomy and physiology as respects the critical questions about the nature of life muller still struggled between the older essentially the metaphysical view and the naturalistic one which was then being developed but the conviction that nothing could replace the knowledge of facts forced itself upon him with increasing certainty and it may be that his influence over his students was the greater because he still so struggled young people are ready at once to attack the deepest problems and thus i attacked the perplexing question of the nature of the vital force most physiologists had at that time adopted g e stahl's way out of the difficulty that while it is the physical and chemical forces of the organs and substances of the living body which act on it there is an indwelling vital soul or vital force which could bind and loose the activity of these forces that after death the free action of these forces produces decomposition while during life their action is continually being controlled by the soul of life i had a misgiving that there was something against nature in this explanation but it took me a good deal of trouble to state my misgiving in the form of a definite question i found ultimately in the latter years of my career as a student that stahl's theory ascribed to every living body the nature of a perpetuum mobile i was tolerably well acquainted with the controversies on this latter subject in my school days i had heard it discussed by my father and our mathematical teachers and while still a pupil of the Frederick Wilhelms Institute, I had helped in the library, and in my spare moments had looked through the works of Daniel, Bernoulli, the Alembert, and other mathematicians of the last century. I thus came upon the question, what relations must exist between the various kinds of natural forces for a perpetual motion to be possible? And the further one, do these relations actually exist? in my essay on the conservation of force my aim was merely to give a critical investigation and arrangement of the facts for the benefit of physiologists i should have been quite prepared if the experts had ultimately said we know all that what is this young doctor thinking about in considering himself called upon to explain it all to us so fully but to my astonishment the physical authorities with whom i came in contact took up the matter quite differently they were inclined to deny the correctness of the law and in the eager contest in which they were engaged against hegel's natural philosophy were disposed to declare my essay to be a fantastical speculation jacobi the mathematician who recognized the connection of my line of thought with that of the mathematicians of the last century was the only one who took an interest in my attempt and protected me from being misconceived on the other hand i met with enthusiastic applause and practical help from my younger friends and especially from e Dubois raymond these then soon brought over to my side the members of the recently formed physical society of berlin about Jules' researches on the same subject i knew at that time but little and nothing at all of those of robert mayer connected with this were a few smaller experimental researches on putrefaction and fermentation in which i was able to furnish a proof in opposition to liebig's contention that both were by no means purely chemical decompositions spontaneously occurring or brought about by the aid of the atmospheric oxygen that alcoholic fermentation more especially was bound up with the presence of yeast spores which are only formed by reproduction there was further my work on metabolism in muscular action which afterwards was connected with that on the development of heat in muscular action these being processes which were to be expected from the law of the conservation of force these researches were sufficient to direct upon me the attention of johannes muller as well as of the prussian ministry of instruction and to lead to my being called to berlin as brook's successor and immediately thereupon to the university of konigsberg the army medical authorities with thankworthy liberality very readily agreed to relieve me from the obligation of further military service and thus made it possible for me to take up a scientific position in konigsberg i had to lecture on general pathology and physiology A university professor undergoes a very valuable training in being compelled to lecture every year on the whole range of his science in such a manner that he convinces and satisfies the intelligent among his hearers, the leading men of the next generation. This necessity yielded me, first of all, two valuable results. For in preparing my course of lectures, I hit directly on the possibility of the ophthalmoscope and then on the plan of measuring the rate of propagation of excitation in the nerves the ophthalmoscope is perhaps the most popular of my scientific performances but i have already related to the oculists how luck really played a comparatively more important part than my own merit i had to explain to my hearers brooke's theory of ocular illumination to this brooke was actually within a hair's breadth of the invention of the ophthalmoscope he had merely neglected to put the question to what optical image do the rays belong which come from the illuminated eye for the purpose he had then in view it was not necessary to propound this question if he had put it he was quite the man to answer it as quickly as i could and the plan of the ophthalmoscope would have been given i turned the problem about in various ways to see how i could best explain it to my hearers and i thereby hit upon the question i have mentioned i knew well from my medical studies the difficulties which oculists had about the conditions then comprised under the name of amaurosis and i at once set about constructing the instrument by means of spectacle-glasses and the glass used for microscope purposes The instrument was at first difficult to use, and without an assured theoretical conviction that it must work, I might perhaps not have persevered. But in about a week I had the great joy of being the first who saw clearly before him a living human retina. The construction of the ophthalmoscope had a very decisive influence on my position in the eyes of the world. From this time forward i met with the most willing recognition and readiness to meet my wishes on the part of the authorities and of my colleagues so that for the future i was able to pursue far more freely the secret impulses of my desire for knowledge i must however say that i ascribed my success in great measure to the circumstance that possessing some geometrical capacity and equipped with a knowledge of physics I had by good fortune been thrown among medical men, where I found in physiology a virgin soil of great fertility, while on the other hand I was led by the consideration of the vital processes to questions and points of view which are usually foreign to pure mathematicians and physicists. Up to that time I had only been able to compare my mathematical abilities with those of my fellow pupils and of my medical colleagues that i was for the most part superior to them in this respect did not perhaps say very much moreover mathematics was always regarded in the school as a branch of secondary rank in latin composition on the contrary which then decided the poem of victory more than half my fellow pupils were ahead of me in my own consciousness my researches were simple logical applications of the experimental and mathematical methods developed in science which by slight modifications could be easily adapted to the particular object in view my colleagues and friends who like myself had devoted themselves to the physical aspect of physiology furnished results no less surprising but in the course of time matters could not remain in that stage problems which might be solved by known methods i had gradually to hand over to the pupils in my laboratory and for my own part turned to more difficult researches where success was uncertain where general methods left the investigator in the lurch or where the method itself had to be worked out in those regions also which come nearer the boundaries of our knowledge i have succeeded in many things experimental and mechanical I do not know if I may add philosophical. In respect of the former, like any one who has attacked many experimental problems, I had become a person of experience, who was acquainted with many plans and devices, and I had changed my youthful habit of considering things geometrically into a kind of mechanical mode of view. I felt intuitively, as it were, how strains and stresses were distributed in any mechanical arrangement, a faculty also met with in experienced mechanicians and machine constructors. But I had the advantage over them of being able to make complicated and specially important relations perspicuous by means of theoretical analysis. I have also been in a position to solve several mathematical, physical problems, and some indeed on which the great mathematicians since the time of Euler had in vain occupied themselves. For example, questions as to vortex motion and the discontinuity of motions in liquids, the question as to the motion of sound at the open ends of organ pipes, etc., etc., but the pride which i might have felt about the final results in these cases was considerably lowered by my consciousness that i had only succeeded in solving such problems after many devious ways by the gradually increasing generalization of favourable examples and by a series of fortunate guesses i had to compare myself with an alpine climber who not knowing the way ascends slowly and with toil and is often compelled to retrace his steps because his progress is stopped sometimes by reasoning and sometimes by accident he hits upon traces of a fresh path which again leads him a little further and finally when he has reached the goal he finds to his annoyance a royal road on which he might have ridden up if he had been clever enough to find the right starting-point at the outset in my memoirs i have of course not given the reader an account of my wanderings but i have described the beaten path on which he can now reach the summit without trouble there are many people of narrow views who greatly admire themselves if once in a way they have had a happy idea or believe they have had one an investigator or an artist who is continually having a great number of happy ideas is undoubtedly a privileged being, and is recognized as a benefactor of humanity. But who can count or measure such mental flashes? Who can follow the hidden tracks by which conceptions are connected? That which man has never known or had not thought out through the labyrinth of mind wanders in the night i must say that those regions in which we have not to rely on lucky accidents and ideas have always been most agreeable to me as fields of work but as i have often been in the unpleasant position of having to wait for lucky ideas i have had some experience as to when and where they came to me which will perhaps be useful to others they often steal into the line of thought without their importance being at first understood then afterwards some accidental circumstance shows how and under what conditions they have originated they are present otherwise without our knowing whence they came in other cases they occur suddenly without exertion like an inspiration as far as my experience goes they never came at the desk or to a tired brain i have always so turned my problem about in all directions that i could see in my mind its turns and complications and run through them freely without writing them down but to reach that stage was not usually possible without long preliminary work then after the fatigue from this had passed away an hour of perfect bodily repose and quiet comfort was necessary before the good ideas came they often came actually in the morning on waking as expressed in goethe's words which i have quoted and as gauss also has remarked but as i have stated in heidelberg they were usually apt to come when comfortably ascending woody hills in sunny weather the smallest quantity of alcoholic drink seemed to frighten them away such moments of fruitful thought were indeed very delightful but not so the reverse when the redeeming ideas did not come for weeks or months i was gnawing at such a question until in my mind i was like to a beast upon a barren heath dragged in a circle by an evil spirit while all around are pleasant pastures green and lastly it was often a sharp attack of headache which released me from the strain and set me free for other interests i have entered upon still another region to which i was led by investigation on perception and observation of the senses namely the theory of cognition just as a physicist has to examine the telescope and galvanometer with which he is working has to get a clear conception of what he can attain with them and how they may deceive him so too it seemed to me necessary to investigate likewise the capabilities of our power of thought here also we were concerned only with the series of questions of fact about which definite answers could and must be given we have distinct impressions of the senses in consequence of which we know how to act the success of the action usually agrees with that which was to have been anticipated but sometimes also not in what are called subjective impressions these are all objective facts the laws regulating which it will be possible to find my principal result was that the impressions of the senses are only signs for the constitution of the external world the interpretation of which must be learned by experience the interest for questions of the theory of cognition had been implanted in me in my youth when i had often heard my father who had retained a strong impression from Fichtner's idealism dispute with his colleagues who believe in kant or hegel hitherto i have had but little reason to be proud about those investigations for each one in my favour i have had about ten opponents and i have in particular aroused all the metaphysicians even the materialistic ones and all people of hidden metaphysical tendencies but the addresses of the last few days have revealed a host of friends whom as yet i did not know so that in this respect also i am indebted to this festivity for pleasure and for fresh hope philosophy it is true has been for nearly three thousand years the battleground for the most violent differences of opinion, and it is not to be expected that these can be settled in the course of a single life. I have wished to explain to you how the history of my scientific endeavors and successes, so far as they go, appears when looked at from my own point of view, and you will perhaps understand that I am surprised at the universal profusion of praise which you have poured out upon me my successes have had primarily this value for my own estimate of myself that they furnished a standard of what i might further attempt but they have not i hope led me to self-admiration i have often enough seen how injurious an exaggerated sense of self-importance may be for a scholar and hence i have always taken great care not to fall a prey to this enemy i well knew that a rigid self-criticism of my own work and my own capabilities was the protection and palladium against this fate but it is only needful to keep the eyes open for what others can do and what one cannot do oneself to find that there is no great danger and as regards my own work i do not think i have ever corrected the last proof of a memoir without finding in the course of twenty-four hours a few points which i could have done better or more carefully as regards the thanks which you consider you owe me i should be unjust if i said that the good of humanity appeared to me from the outset as the conscious object of my labours it was in fact the special form of my desire for knowledge which impelled me and determined me to employ in scientific research all the time which was not required by my official duties and by the care for my family these two restrictions did not indeed require any essential deviation from the aims i was striving for my office required me to make myself capable of delivering lectures in the university my family that i should establish and maintain my reputation as an investigator the state which provided my maintenance scientific appliances and a great share of my free time had in my opinion acquired thereby the right that i should communicate faithfully and completely to my fellow citizens and in a suitable form that which i had discovered by its help the writing out of scientific investigations is usually a troublesome affair at any rate it has been so to me many parts of my memoirs i have rewritten five or six times and have changed the order about until i was fairly satisfied but the author has a great advantage in such a careful wording of his work it compels him to make the severest criticism of each sentence and each conclusion more thoroughly even than the lectures at the university which i have mentioned i have never considered an investigation finished until it was formulated in writing completely and without any logical deficiencies those among my friends who were most conversant with the matter represented to my mind my conscience as it were i asked myself whether they would approve of it they hovered before me as the embodiment of the scientific spirit of an ideal humanity and furnished me with a standard in the first half of my life when i had still to work for my external position i will not say that along with a desire for knowledge and a feeling of duty as servant of the state higher ethical motives were not also at work it was however in any case difficult to be certain of the reality of their existence so long as selfish motives were still existent this is perhaps the case with all investigators but afterwards when an assured position has been attained when those who have no inner impulse towards science may quite cease their labors a higher conception of their relation to humanity does influence those who continue to work they gradually learn from their own experience how the thoughts which they have uttered whether through literature or through oral instruction continue to act on their fellow men and possess as it were an independent life how these thoughts further worked out by their pupils, acquire a deeper significance and a more definite form, and, reacting on their originators, furnish them with fresh instruction. The ideas of an individual which he himself has conceived are, of course, more closely connected with his mental field of view than extraneous ones, and he feels more encouragement and satisfaction when he sees the latter more abundantly developed than the former a kind of parental affection for such a mental child ultimately springs up which leads him to care and to struggle for the furtherance of his mental offspring as he does for his real children but at the same time the whole intellectual world of civilized humanity presents itself to him as a continuous and spontaneously developing whole the duration of which seems infinite as compared with that of a single individual with his small contributions to the building up of science he sees that he is in the service of something everlastingly sacred with which he is connected by close bands of affection his work thereby appears to him more sanctified anyone can perhaps apprehend this theoretically but actual personal experience is doubtless necessary to develop this idea into a strong feeling the world which is not apt to believe in ideal motives calls this feeling love of fame but there is a decisive criterion by which both kinds of sentiment can be discriminated ask the question if it is the same to you whether the results of investigation which you have obtained are recognized as belonging to you or not when there are no considerations of external advantage bound up with the answer to this question The reply to it is easiest in the case of chiefs of laboratories. The teacher must usually furnish the fundamental idea of the research, as well as a number of proposals for overcoming experimental difficulties, in which more or less ingenuity comes into play. All this passes as the work of the student, and ultimately appears in his name when the research is finished. Who can afterwards decide what one or the other has done? And how many teachers are there not, who in this respect are devoid of any jealousy? Thus, gentlemen, I have been in the happy position that, in freely following my own inclination, I have been led to researches for which you praise me as having been useful and instructive. I am extremely fortunate that I am praised and honoured by my contemporaries, in so high a degree, for a course of work which is, to me, the most interesting I could pursue." but my contemporaries have afforded me great and essential help. Apart from the care of my own existence and that of my family, of which they have relieved me, and apart from the external means with which they have provided me, I have found in them a standard of the intellectual capacity of man, and by their sympathy for my work, they have evoked in me a vivid conception of the universal mental life of humanity, which has enabled me to see the value of my own researches in a higher light. In these circumstances I can only regard as a free gift the thanks which you desire to accord to me, given unconditionally and without counting on any return. This ends an autobiographical sketch by Hermann von Helmholtz. Read for you by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in July 2021.